File 35 of A Treatise of Human Nature by David Hume. Volume 1. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by George Yeager. Book 1. Part 4. Section 3. Of the Ancient Philosophy. Several moralists have recommended it as an excellent method of becoming acquainted with our own hearts, and knowing our progress in virtue, to recollect our dreams in a morning, and examine them with the same rigor that we would our most serious and most deliberate actions. Our character is the same throughout, say they, and appears best where artifice, fear, and policy have no place, and men can neither be hypocrites with themselves nor others. The generosity or baseness of our temper, our meekness or cruelty, our courage or pusillanimity influence the fictions of the imagination with the most unbounded liberty, and discover themselves in the most glaring colors. In like manner, I am persuaded there might be several useful discoveries made from a criticism of the fictions of the ancient philosophy concerning substances and substantial forms, and accidents and occult qualities, which, however unreasonable and capricious, have a very intimate connection with the principles of human nature. It is confessed by the most judicious philosophers that our ideas of bodies are nothing but collections formed by the mind of the ideas of the several distinct sensible qualities of which objects are composed, and which we find to have a constant union with each other. But however these qualities may in themselves be entirely distinct, it is certain we commonly regard the compound which they form as one thing, and as continuing the same under very considerable alterations. The acknowledged composition is evidently contrary to this supposed simplicity, and the variation to the identity. It may, therefore, be worth while to consider the causes which make us almost universally fall into such evident contradictions, as well as the means by which we endeavor to conceal them. It is evident that as the ideas of the several distinct successive qualities of objects are united together by a very close relation, the mind, in looking along the succession, must be carried from one part of it to another by an easy transition, and will no more perceive the change than if it contemplated the same unchangeable object. This easy transition is the effect, or rather essence of relation, and as the imagination readily takes one idea for another where their influence on the mind is similar, hence it proceeds that any such succession of related qualities is readily considered as one continued object existing without any variation. The smooth and uninterrupted progress of the thought, being alike in both cases, readily deceives the mind, 
and makes us ascribe an identity to the changeable succession of connected qualities. But when we alter our method of considering the succession, and instead of tracing it gradually through the successive points of time, survey at once any two distinct periods of its duration, and compare the different conditions of the successive qualities, in that case the variations which were insensible when they arose gradually do now appear of consequence, and seem entirely to destroy the identity. By this means there arises a kind of contrariety in our method of thinking, from the different points of view in which we survey the object, and from the nearness or remoteness of those instants of time which we compare together. When we gradually follow an object in its successive changes, the smooth progress of the thought makes us ascribe an identity to the succession, because it is by a similar act of the mind we consider an unchangeable object. When we compare its situation after a considerable change, the progress of the thought is broke, and consequently we are presented with the idea of diversity. In order to reconcile which contradictions, the imagination is apt to feign something unknown and invisible, which it supposes to continue the same under all these variations, and this unintelligible something it calls a substance or original and first matter. We entertain a like notion with regard to the simplicity of substances and from like causes. Suppose an object perfectly simple and indivisible to be presented along with another object whose co-existent parts are connected together by a strong relation. It is evident the actions of the mind in considering these two objects are not very different. The imagination conceives the simple object at once, with facility, by a single effort of thought, without change or variation. The connection of parts in the compound object has almost the same effect, and so unites the object within itself that the fancy feels not the transition in passing from one part to another. Hence, the color, taste, figure, solidity, and other qualities combined in a peach or melon are conceived to form one thing, and that on account of their close relation, which makes them affect the thought in the same manner as if perfectly uncompounded. But the mind rests not here. Whenever it views the object in another light, it finds that all these qualities are different, and distinguishable, and separable from each other, which view of things being destructive of its primary and more natural notions, obliges the imagination to feign an unknown something or original substance and matter as a principle of union or cohesion among these qualities, and as what may give the compound object a title to be called one thing, notwithstanding its diversity and composition. The peripatetic philosophy asserts the original matter to be perfectly homogeneous in all bodies, and considers fire, 
water, earth, and air, as of the very same substance, on account of their gradual revolutions and changes into each other. At the same time, it assigns to each of these species of objects a distinct substantial form, which it supposes to be the source of all those different qualities they possess, and to be a new foundation of simplicity and identity to each particular species. All depends on our manner of viewing the objects. When we look along the insensible changes of bodies, we suppose all of them to be of the same substance or essence. When we consider their sensible differences, we attribute to each of them a substantial and essential difference. And in order to indulge ourselves in both these ways of considering our objects, we suppose all bodies to have at once a substance and a substantial form. The notion of accidents is an unavoidable consequence of this method of thinking with regard to substances and substantial forms. Nor can we forbear looking upon colors, sounds, tastes, figures, and other properties of bodies as existences which cannot subsist apart, but require a subject of inhesion to sustain and support them. For having never discovered any of these sensible qualities, where, for the reasons above mentioned, we did not likewise fancy a substance to exist, the same habit which makes us infer a connection betwixt cause and effect, makes us here infer a dependence of every quality on the unknown substance. The custom of imagining a dependence has the same effect as the custom of observing it would have. This conceit, however, is no more reasonable than any of the foregoing. Every quality, being a distinct thing from another, may be conceived to exist apart, and may exist apart not only from every other quality, but from that unintelligible chimera of a substance. But these philosophers carry their fictions still farther in their sentiments concerning occult qualities, and both suppose a substance supporting which they do not understand, and an accident supported of which they have as imperfect an idea. The whole system, therefore, is entirely incomprehensible, and yet is derived from principles as natural as any of these above explained. In considering this subject, we may observe a gradation of three opinions that rise above each other, according as the persons who form them acquire new degrees of reason and knowledge. These opinions are that of the vulgar, that of a false philosophy, and that of the true, where we shall find, upon inquiry, that the true philosophy approaches nearer to the sentiments of the vulgar than to those of a mistaken knowledge. It is natural for men, in their common and careless way of thinking, 
to imagine they perceive a connection betwixt such objects as they have constantly found united together and because custom has rendered it difficult to separate the ideas they are apt to fancy such a separation to be in itself impossible and absurd but philosophers who abstract from the effects of custom and compare the ideas of objects immediately perceive the falsehood of these vulgar sentiments and discover that there is no known connection among objects every different object appears to them entirely distinct and separate and they perceive that it is not from a view of the nature and qualities of objects we infer one from another but only when in several instances we observe them to have been constantly conjoined but these philosophers instead of drawing a just inference from this observation and concluding that we have no idea of power or agency separate from the mind and belonging to causes i say instead of drawing this conclusion they frequently search for the qualities in which this agency consists and are displeased with every system which their reason suggests to them in order to explain it they have sufficient force of genius to free them from the vulgar error that there is a natural and perceivable connection betwixt the several sensible qualities and actions of matter but not sufficient to keep them from ever seeking for this connection in matter or causes had they fallen upon the just conclusion they would have returned back to the situation of the vulgar and would have regarded all these disquisitions with indolence and indifference at present they seem to be in a very lamentable condition and such as the poets have given us but a faint notion of in their descriptions of the punishment of sisyphus and tantalus for what can be imagined more tormenting than to seek with eagerness what for ever flies us and seek for it in a place where it is impossible it can ever exist but as nature seems to have observed a kind of justice and compensation in everything she has not neglected philosophers more than the rest of the creation but has reserved them a consolation amid all their disappointments and afflictions this consolation principally consists in their invention of the words faculty and occult quality for it being usual after the frequent use of terms which are really significant and intelligible to omit the idea which we would express by them and to preserve only the custom by which we recall the idea at pleasure so it naturally happens that after the frequent use of terms which are wholly insignificant and unintelligible we fancy them to be on the same footing with the precedent and to have a secret meaning which we might discover by reflection the resemblance of their appearance deceives the mind as is usual and makes us imagine a thorough resemblance and conformity by this means these philosophers set themselves at ease and arrive at last by an illusion 
at the same indifference which the people attain by their stupidity, and true philosophers by their moderate scepticism. They need only say that any phenomenon which puzzles them arises from a faculty or an occult quality, and there is an end of all dispute and inquiry upon the matter. But among all the instances wherein the peripatetics have shewn they were guided by every trivial propensity of the imagination, no one is more remarkable than their sympathies, antipathies, and horrors of a vacuum. There is a very remarkable inclination in human nature to bestow on external objects the same emotions which it observes in itself and to find everywhere those ideas which are most present to it. This inclination, it is true, is suppressed by a little reflection, and only takes place in children, poets, and the ancient philosophers. It appears in children by their desire of beating the stones which hurt them, in poets by their readiness to personify everything, and in the ancient philosophers, by these fictions of sympathy and antipathy. We must pardon children, because of their age. Poets, because they profess to follow implicitly the suggestions of their fancy. But what excuse shall we find to justify our philosophers in so signal a weakness? End of File 35